do sit. And I hope you really enjoyed the first session. Most people have been spending the coffee break having conversations where they just try and get the word really, just really right. Uh, Randy, we're really looking, really looking forward to what you have to say now. Thanks. You'll need to do a lot of cultural translating from things I say, so I, I hope you'll be able to do that. Uh, I am delighted to, to be this, uh, to spend this time with you. Um, let me share a story with you, because we all need lots of stories. We need encouragement. Um, this most recent book that I wrote came as a result of interviewing uh, close to 50 recent noob converts. And uh, I, I find that hearing their story and letting them tell their story for, uh, for 45 minutes to an hour each you start getting a whole bunch of things that don't necessarily come out in a short three-minute testimony. But one of my favorite stories, uh, I, I should say I, I got the names of these students from campus ministers. And so these campus ministers had pretty much convinced me that, yes, these were real solid decisions and that uh, I would find the stories to be valid conversions. And they were, and it was great. So there was this one young woman who began telling me the story but saying that, she grew up in a family with no religion at all, never went to church. Her father was a strong atheist. Her, her mother was an atheist. And uh, her parents uh, were really pretty anti-religion. Her father's father was a pastor. And uh, so, the, but, they, but he, w- he wouldn't be allowed to talk to his granddaughters about his faith. And so um, she grew up in a totally secular environment. And uh, atheism was kind of the, the, uh, the rule. And uh, she went off to college. She said, my first year in college, I, um, uh, I was just kind of a typical college freshman, uh, first-year student. Uh, I, um, I, I didn't know anybody religious. All of my friends were also atheists, and uh, that's, uh, that's how the first year was. It was a lot of fun. I went home, and my parents said, uh, I went home at the end of the first year, summer vacation, we're going to take a family vacation. We're going to go to London for two weeks. And so she said, so I decided to pack my Bible. I said, you're, you're, you're what? And, and I'm supposed to be doing professional research for this. This is a, you know, a doctoral dissertation. This is supposed to be professional. I just, my jaw dropped. You're what? She said, my Bible. I said, you had a Bible? She said, yeah. Where, where did you get a Bible? She goes, you know, it's funny. I don't know. I don't really know where I got it. I got all excited. I said, did your grandfather give it to you? No, absolutely not. My father wouldn't allow that. All right. So, so you don't know where you got the Bible. Hey, you know, I might be this friend of mine from elementary school gave it to me or something. Okay. But you decided to bring your Bible on vacation. Yes. Why? Um, which is probably not something researchers are supposed to say. And, and she said, well, you know, it's really funny. I don't know. I don't know why. And then she went out of her way to tell me it was one of those big fat Bibles. It was thick. And so I was giving up room in my suitcase. My dad said we had a pack light. It was only one small. So I was giving up room in my suitcase with this big fat Bible. I said, okay. I said, so did, did, you, did you read your Bible on vacation? She said, oh, yeah, every day. Why? Again, a question you're not supposed to ask as a researcher. Uh, like, why, did, why did you do this? She goes, I don't know. I said, did you, did you understand it? She goes, well, n- not all of it. But I said, did you like it? She said, I loved it. Oh, what did you read? Well, I, I, I read uh, Matthew. I read Romans. I read the Psalms. I really liked the Psalms. Oh, my goodness. I said, did it make sense to you? No. So when I went back to college, I thought my highest priority for this year is i got to find people who know about the Bible. And before classes even began, she saw a poster on a wall about a Christian organization that was doing a talk called Why Believe the Bible. She said, okay, this is my meaning. So she goes there, and the guy gives a talk on four reasons why you should believe the Bible. By the way, one of his four was, uh, isn't it interesting that when people curse, they use the name of Jesus? That was one of the four reasons why you should believe the Bible. I've attended a lot of apologetics conferences. Never heard that one. That was the one of the four she remembered years later. Okay, try it out. I don't know. Anyway, so... All right, so so you heard this talk, and what did you think? I said, I thought it was really interesting. I thought, i got to talk to this guy. So she said, so I went back to my room, and I found him on Facebook, and I stalked him. That's what she said. I stalked him on Facebook. I thought, this is not going well. Maybe I don't have to record all of this. Uh, so I, I sent him a Facebook message that said, I've got to talk to you about your message tonight. He very wisely was on the staff of an organization, sent a female staff worker to meet with her, and they started meeting for weekly Bible studies. Every single week, two months later, she became a believer. At the end of all of my interviews, I always asked, uh, same, I had the same set of questions, but toward the end I would say, what would you say were the three most important factors in your coming to become a Christian? And she said, well, definitely bringing that Bible on vacation. 
And uh, definitely that talk that that guy gave about four reasons why you should believe the Bible. And then she paused and she said, and I, I guess the third thing has to be my grandfather. I said, your grandfather, you haven't mentioned him in 45 minutes. What, did, did he ever talk to you about this stuff? No, no, never. So why is he one of the three most important factors? She said, I, I just don't know. I can't put my finger on it. It just seems like just knowing that he was there had some sort of effect. Isn't that beautiful? I was close to, t- to crying. I, 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 I thought, way to go, Grandpa, praying your knees off for your granddaughters. Um, this, this evangelism process that we're involved in, it's absolutely supernatural. And God is at work in ways that we could never even design, even if we wanted to. So I want to encourage you, as we think about this process, again from the human side, um, just remember, though, that's not the whole piece of the story. There is this other dramatic work of God, the Holy Spirit, working in people. I want to give you a couple of visual images of what this process can look like. I've talked about pre-evangelism and evangelism. Um, let me try to illustrate it to you this way. Could you imagine uh, imagine a line in midair, suspended in midair, and on the line is the alphabet. So down over here is the letter A, A, B, C, D, E, all the way up to Z. Uh, that's the only time I'm going to remember not to call it Z. I'll do my best, but okay, so A through Z, and this is a spectrum of unbelief. So um, A is the most hardened, angry atheist you can imagine, and Z is someone really close to becoming a believer. This person's heard the gospel, made sense, they've had their questions answered, they've wrestled with conviction of sin, and they see their need for a savior. All somebody has to do is come along and say, would you like to become a Christian? And they're ready. And then that begins, oh, another spectrum from young believer to mature believer, okay? So you got the A to Z spectrum here. Here's what I think. There's, there are a lot of evangelism strategies that were formulated in, in America and also Western Europe, 1950s, 1960s, when a lot of people in our societies were already on this side of the spectrum, maybe at letter T. And so evangelism in the 1950s and 60s very often was T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z. We could start conversations with, would you like to know God personally? And people say, you can know God personally? How do I do that? And, and the God that they were thinking of, even if they weren't a believer, uh, even if they weren't a Christian, the, the God that came to their mind was the God you were talking about. Right? Does that make sense? Um, but our culture, our cultures have shifted, so our whole world has shifted. Um, and so there's just a whole lot of people who aren't there yet. They're down at letter D. Or maybe if they're like my relatives, they're at negative W. <laughs> and so we were trained, many of us who learned about evangelism training things learned. Um, do you have the, the, the organization Evangelism Explosion? Do you know that organization? By the way, isn't that a lovely image? Sorry, evangelism. <laughs> I, I don't think that's the best image. Sorry. Uh, apologies to those of you who work with that organization. Um, it, it's a very good organization. But they, they had this um, uh, starter question that said, um, uh, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? Right? Have you heard this question? Sometimes it's elaborated. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I think that's a great question. It's wonderful for someone already on this side of the spectrum. The the question assumes a lot of common ground, doesn't it? It it assumes they believe in God, that they believe in a personal God who could ask them a question. They believe in heaven. They believe that they would want to go there. And they believe that something they could possibly say or believe would make that kind of difference. But for people who are on this side of the spectrum, and again, for, for my family, for Jewish people, that anything that starts with, if you were to die tonight, is not a good starter. In Jewish culture, there's an Eastern European Jewish superstition that you don't say bad things because if you say them, they'll happen to you. It's sick. Um, but Jewish guilt has uh, deep roots. Anyway, um, uh, so, so if, for my relatives, if you were to die tonight, shut up. What is your problem? Why are you, why are you people always talking about dying tonight? What is it like? Are you trying to sell life insurance? What is your problem? Get out of here. It's not a good, not a good letter D question. 
It might. So if you get to know someone and find out that they're already here and they share, that's a great question. I'm not opposed to the question. I am opposed to saying there's one approach for everybody. Isn't that one of the biggest lessons we learned from the Gospels, how Jesus approached different people different ways? John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus, and he's a religious Jewish leader who knows the Scriptures, and Jesus is trying to appeal to his understanding about God's work in the supernatural. Remember, at one point, he even rebukes Nicodemus a little bit. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? But the next chapter in John chapter 4, where he's talking to the woman at the well, Samaritan, woman, outcast, um, he doesn't talk about intellectual, theological things. He talks about water and an emotional longing for intimacy that she's not getting with any of the husbands or the man she's living with. So we have different approaches in the gospel, certainly different approaches in the book of Acts. And so we need to know the gospel so well and to know its implications in all sorts of different directions that when people are here, we know how to have a conversation or here or here. A whole lot of this, by the way, is just listening and listening carefully. We're going to do an exercise this afternoon in listening to draw people out. Many people even move along the spectrum just by their own talking and realizing things. So what we need to do is have a variety of starter questions and ideas of of where we can engage people. Um, So uh, I don't use the if you were to die tonight question until I've talked to a person enough to know that they're somewhere at letter T. By the way, I'm developing an app which will tell you exactly where people are. (laughs) It's brilliant and I'm going to make a fortune because you'll just kind of look at it and it'll say L and then you tap it and it tells you questions. It's great. Just kidding. Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, we might have to listen to people and also listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, so I want to be able to think of what are, what are some questions where I just get to know people? Where are you from? What do you like to do? How do you like to spend free time? Do you like to read books? Who are some of your favorite authors? Do you like movies? What are some of your favorite movies? And in the course of getting to know people and find out those things, I also will insert, well, do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? And then you want to listen carefully because they might say, oh, yeah, I think about it all the time. Um, my brother told me I should read the Bible, and I've read it now twice, and I'm, I'm, I'm got, I've got all sorts of questions. Oh, that's letter Y, isn't it? Or maybe Z. That was my younger brother. My younger brother and I had talked a bunch of times, and I suggested that he would read the New Testament. And one time he told me, he says, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I don't even know about Judaism. I'm, I'm ignorant about religion. I don't know about our own religion. I don't know other religions. And I said, well, I think you might want to consider reading the Bible and especially the New Testament. And, and then I totally forgot about it until I found out months later, almost a year later, someone approached him on his campus, on his college campus. Um, uh, Do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? Oh, yeah, I think about it all the time. My brother told me I should read the Bible, and my brother became a believer two months later. My other brother, my older brother, is somewhere at negative B, and, and pretty much every attempt I've ever had in over 40 years trying to talk to him about spiritual things, his response has always been the same. Nah. Nah. Doesn't matter. No, no matter which angle I come at. Anything spiritual, nah. So, by the way, um, I've tried to figure out what else I can talk to my brother about. My brother was into history and reading presidential biographies for a very long time, and I, I didn't even know it because I was just so obsessed with my own agenda. It was only after I listened carefully to find out about his interest in presidential biographies that I thought, well, okay, let's talk about that. I may come back to that. Let me tell you my favorite story about this A to Z kind of thing. Um, my mother, my, my Jewish mother. I don't know, do any of you know any Jewish mother jokes? They're, they're, they're usually about guilt. They're true, and they're not funny. Stop laughing! So um, my, uh, my Jewish mother heard that I became a believer, and I promptly tried to witness to my mother and my father. I sent my parents books. I sent them a New Testament. I, I sent them, uh, the, there's a, a, a DVD film of the Gospel of Luke called the Jesus Film. I don't know if you've seen it. I sent my parents both the English copy and the Hebrew copy. My parents don't speak a word of Hebrew. <laughs> Just thought it would be impressive it wasn't. 
And I, I, and so I, I tried for many, many years to be very honest with you. I hate to admit this, but I'm sure it's true. I, I think I gave up. I lost heart. Uh, I, it just didn't seem like anything was working. My mother was stuck at letter D, and my mother was a strong believer that all the religions are the same. Everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. And nothing I could a- ever say made any difference. So um, I, uh, I gave up, and I'm sorry that I was not diligent in prayer. Uh, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it, that God is faithful even when we're not? Um, God was working in my mother's life, and um, um, my mother, um, still with the phone, <laughs> he met me during the break and said, I want to be your friend. This is not helping us. This is not working, no. Oh, Rico knows how to turn phones off. <laughs> oh. <laughs> sure you are. Uh, Jewish mother guilt. Uh, just Anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, where was I? Okay. So one day I was on the phone with my mother and uh, she told me about a funeral that she had just gone to. And it was a funeral uh, of a man who taught in a school that I attended. So I knew this man. I knew him to be a very angry atheist who never, who never turned, who never moved. Uh, he died after this tragic illness. It was a horrible story. And my mother said to me on the phone, well, at least now he's in a better place. Oh, I don't know. I'm uh, betting a lot of money on that one. Um, and so I started constructing a sermon. I had a lot of Bible verses come to mind. And then I thought, that, that didn't work. I, I've tried that. I've tried the direct approach. And I'd been experimenting with the whole idea of asking questions, so I asked my mother a question. I said, well, Mom, how do you know that? That's a very important question in this gradual, incremental, A to Z kind of evangelism. Um, how do you know that? And there was this terribly uncomfortable pause, and my mother, after quite a while, then said, well, I guess I don't know that. And I wanted to sing the hallelujah chorus. My mother budged that day from D to D and a half. And that, and, and by the way, the rest of the phone call was not very comfortable for either one of us, and it was disturbing. And I'm not even so sure we talked to each other for a while, but it bothered her terribly. And somewhere in the course of the next several months, my mother um, started to read the New Testament. But uh, 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 Jewish mothers don't usually do that. So, read the New Testament. My mother starts sending me emails about the New Testament. Why did Jesus say that? What did I do? I responded with a question. Why do you think he did that? Really bothered her. But, but I wanted to draw her out. Why did people hate Jesus so much? Why do you think so, Mom? And over months, really quite a while, um, uh, oh, this was fun. My, my younger brother, the one I told you about that was over there, he had become a believer. Now he was living in, in, in Europe. And he, we started calling each other. This is, this is long before Skype and cheap things. We were spending money talking to each other, things like, Mom's reading the Bible. Can you? We were like, like little kids. So, yeah. So one day my mother sends me an email. She says, I'm beginning to think like you do, that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> Mom. Would you say he's your, all in capitals, Messiah, question mark? She wrote back, not yet. (laughs) But it was less than a year later, my mom became a believer. At age 75, I have a picture on my computer that whenever I'm in the mood to cry, I will pop it open of my mother at age 75 being baptized by my brother. (laughs) I'm not kidding. So all that to say is we need an idea, a mindset of gradual evangelism. By the way, I, I'll bet some of you feel resistant to that. I, I understand that because there is an urgency. There definitely is. And we want to get people here. But the truth is that many people move incrementally. And if you need some, some basis for that in Scripture, and I hope you do, think about Nicodemus. Remember, I just talked about him in chapter 3. Nicodemus is having this conversation with Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen by his fellow religious Jews. And he was kind of like just, you know. And and in John chapter 3, Nicodemus seems like he really doesn't understand anything, does he? He's like, "How how can a person be born again? Can he be in his mother's womb again? I mean, he's not getting it. And at the end of that conversation, Nicodemus just sort of disappears. We don't see him. There's a long stretch where Jesus says things, but we don't, we don't hear from Nicodemus again until chapter 7. He shows up again. 
Uh, and, and this time, it's really kind of interesting. Some religious leaders are complaining and wondering about him and uh, complaining about Jesus. And Nicodemus is, kind of raises his hand and says, Now, now um, uh, don't we have a law that we should not, you know, we should let people... And they, they turn on him. Are you also from Galilee? They give him a hard time. Now, has Nicodemus become a believer? No, I don't, I don't think so. Or I, we just don't have enough information there. But he sure seems like he's getting a lot more than he was a few chapters before. He shows up again, doesn't he? In chapter 19, Nicodemus shows up with Joseph of Arimathea. It tells us Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. And Nicodemus came with him. John inserts the one who came to him at night. And now Nicodemus is there wanting the body with this man who is a believer to take this body down from the cross. Um, isn't, isn't Nicodemus a, 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 a brilliant illustration of people coming gradually? Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? It's like when someone's born again, it, it's, it's like the wind. You hear it sound, but you, you don't exactly know where it's coming from or where it's going. But, but you know it's there. Isn't Nicodemus a perfect poster child of wind-like being born again? And so many of the people you're talking to, you, you don't know where they are on the spectrum, but, but if they, you get into a conversation, you get the idea they're here. Lord, would you move them along? And would you give me patience to trust in your sovereign timetable? By the way, just to, just to um, illustrate this a little bit further with my mother, um, somewhere in the course of my sending my mother all sorts of things, I sent her a book by a man named Stan Telchin. It's my favorite book to give to Jewish people for them to consider the gospel. It's called Betrayed. Um, it's about a man, Jewish man, a very successful Jewish businessman whose daughter goes off to college and she becomes a Christian. She comes home and tells her parents, you need to believe in Jesus. And Stan Telchin felt betrayed. So he was so successful in his business that he could take an entire year just to study the Hebrew scriptures to prove his daughter wrong. He felt like his daughter had joined a cult. He wanted to witness and get her back. And so he studied for a year. You could probably see where this goes. Stan Telchin became a believer. His wife became a believer. His other daughter became a believer. Stan Telchin had a, a brilliant, uh, fruitful gospel ministry in the Jewish community for many, many years in America. So I sent my mother this book, Betrayed, because like I said, it's my favorite book to give. And, and my mother read it, and then she gave it away to somebody else. She told me on the phone she thought it was interesting. It's the worst word you could ever hear. Really? Interesting? And uh, she thought it was interesting, but she thought her friend really could use it more than she could. <sighs> Years later, my mother, when she was reading the New Testament and sending me emails, sent me an email. Have you ever heard of a book called Betrayed by a guy named Stan Telton? <laughs> See, now, one of, the, one of the, the wonderful blessings of email is that you can respond before you respond. You know what I mean? It's like, have I ever heard of Betrayed? Yes, I gave you that book, and you said it was interesting, and you gave it away to somebody else. <sighs> um, yes, Mom, I think so. Why do you ask? Send. She said, it's very good. You ought to read it. Um, another friend of hers uh, gave her that same book, and my mother had forgotten that she had already read it. This very wise friend, Mary, by the way, personally inscribed it. It's a good idea culturally with Jewish people to make it not just here, read this book, but here, I really value our friendship. I'd love to know what you think about it, even gift wrapped it. And so my mother read it again, and for her, it was as if the first time she read it. She told me on the phone a few months after that email about asking about betrayed. She said, my mother said to me on the phone, she said, I think I'm going to have the same problem Stan Telchin had. I said, what, what problem is that, Mom? Uh, I think when I tell my Jewish friends that I'm a believer, I think they're going to reject me. Did, uh, 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 did, Mom, did you just say uh, that you're a believer? Yeah. My mom at age 75. My dad came to faith when he was 86, four years before he died at age 90. He requested that we sing Amazing Grace at his funeral. I wish you could have been there. It was a room maybe about this size, about this middle section here, about 200 people. Half of the room were unsaved Jewish people. Half of the room were unsaved Gentile people. And a very small group, because they went to this very small Messianic Jewish congregation who were believers. So in a room of 200, maybe 30 were believers. And um, all of the Jewish relatives couldn't believe that my father asked for us to sing a song about a wretch. Um, 
you may recall that the, the amazing grace had saved a wretch like me. They're all reading these words for the first time ever. It's like, saved a wretch like me? Marty was a wretch? I didn't think Marty was a wretch. Why? Doesn't seem like the kind of song they should be singing about him at his funeral. I thought he was a nice guy. Um, I'm hoping this is encouraging you for this gradual approach. So, um, let me give you two more visual ideas, and then I think we're going to have some time for Q&A. I, I forgot to work that out with the sound people. Do you have a, a mic? It's, it's, it's here. Okay. Well, can I get people to help me when the time? Okay, good. So two more visual images. One I've given you is A to Z. A to Z. Okay, the second one is a visual image of uh, leveling the playing field. Um, imagine uh, two soccer teams. I don't know if you can imagine anything like that around here. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, well, imagine two soccer teams come out of the locker room and they look at the field, the pitch, and it's like this. Now, the team that's going to be playing over here really like this game. And this side says, wait a minute. And these guys say, we're not even going out on that pitch until something happens where we level the playing field. There's a whole lot of pre-evangelistic conversations we need to have that level the playing field. A lot of non-believers in our world today feel superior to us as believers, either intellectually, I'm scientific, you're superstitious, or morally, I'm tolerant and open-minded, you're homophobic and bigoted. And so before we even step onto the field, so to speak, of having a gospel conversation, we first have to say, wait a minute, um, we both have our tolerance struggle, don't we? Um, or we both have faith assumptions for our beliefs. Now, this may be a little complicated, so I hope I can do this. But so for people who say, well, I, I believe things by science. Science is a way to know truth. Religion is not. You have to understand that's not a scientific statement. That's a religious statement. The belief that science is a better way to know things is a faith belief. Does that make sense? I, I hope you're getting it. When people say science is a better way to know truth, it's, it's not something they can prove in a laboratory. And so what I want to say to people is, well, it sounds like you have faith in science, and I have faith in God and the Bible. Let's compare our two faiths. By the way, I think we should also say... I have some doubts. My guess is you have some doubts. Good scientists admit that they have doubts or they still have questions. Or there's, they, they, The more they discover, the more they realize there's more to discover and there's things they don't know. A, a very good friend of mine who's a, a scientist uh, back in America who serves with NASA, um, who was involved in the, the, the sending of the, the satellite or the, the probe uh, to Pluto, um, he'd been working on it for 20 years, or, and, and when, Pluto, when this thing finally went around Pluto and brought back all sorts of data, he said one of the biggest things we learned was how many surprises there were. We learned tons by that mission, but we also found out what we didn't know. And so what we want to say is scientists can't solve everything by science, and um, so let's level the playing field. I hope that's helpful. Um, it, it's also what we might need to do for moral issues when people say uh, that we're not tolerant about uh, sexual gender issues or whatever. We need to say, well, you know, um, I, I, think, I, I think we probably both need to think about this more deeply than, than either side does, don't we? Um, I think maybe what we need is um, to acknowledge we both have a tolerance issue. Uh, I may not be very tolerant of your uh, moral views doesn't sound like you're very tolerant of mine. Sounds like to me we both need to have some kind of adjustment for both of us to be tolerant or more tolerant or more listening and more understanding. Those are difficult conversations to have, but I'm convinced that we need to have this kind of conversation before we have decent moving along this spectrum. Not in every situation, but in many. All right, one more. Um, it's very similar to this one I just said about leveling the playing field, but it's stepping on the clutch before shifting gears. Um, there are some things we need to say before having a gospel conversation. Um, I'm hoping you all are knowing about stepping on clutch and, and gears. In America, many people drive an automatic transmission. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm hoping over here you got more of an idea of this. Um, what I do know is if you don't step on the clutch and you try to shift gears, it makes a loud noise that sounds like money because um, you're going to like you just thousands of dollars were just spent. Okay, so... 
We need to say some things before we have gospel conversations. Sometimes, and there's a whole wide variety of these things, one of them is, is asking for permission. One kind of clutch to step on before shifting gears is asking for permission. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk about this sometime. Listen, you know, you, you know I, we've gotten to know each other a little better, and you know that I, that I go to church. Um, I, I wonder if you'd, be, if you'd be willing to talk about that sometime over a coffee or over lunch or something. There's something about buying a future conversation that people really like. First of all, it says, oh, you don't necessarily want to talk about this right now? Good. For a lot of people, when they, when, if they say yes, they do a whole lot of thinking between the time they say, yes, someday I would like to talk about that and when you are, have it. So that's a kind of clutch before shifting gears. Um, a, another clutch, I think, is um, having a conversation about the conversation. What I mean is sometimes we need to say, you know, when people talk about religion, sometimes it really gets heated and sometimes it's really kind of ugly. And some people say we should never even talk about those things. But um, I, I, wonder if, uh, I wonder if we could try to have that conversation without it being ugly or mean or harsh. Um, that's a kind of stepping on a clutch before shifting gears. Um, when people accuse us of being on the wrong side of history because we're intolerant about sexual issues or gender issues, I think very often we need to say, you know, um, uh, I think Christians have always been getting into trouble because of moral issues. Christians have always gotten, in some ways you could say Christians have always been on the wrong side of history. John the Baptist got his head chopped off for daring to say something about the moral life of somebody and who they shouldn't or should be sleeping with. So I, I want to I first acknowledge, yeah, this is, this is probably a very difficult conversation. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I, I realize this is unpopular. So having a conversation about the conversation might be, I wonder, uh, should we just accept everything that's going on in society or aren't there some things in society we should say, hmm, wait a minute. I realize this is very complex and complicated, um, but I want to encourage you to experiment with this. You don't have to have that conversation and take it all the way um, to uh, a call for decision all in one conversation. Now, sometimes the speed picks up dramatically. <laughs> uh, one last thing, and then I'll open it up for questions. By the way, um, for, for some people... Um, many people, many non-believers feel like there's one big objection that they have to have solved and they can't possibly become a Christian unless somebody answers whatever it is, the problem of evil, um, all the suffering in the world, uh, the history of the Christian church, whatever. And we need to do a very, very good job of, of respecting that question and doing our best to answer it. But many people become Christians without necessarily getting a thorough answer to that question. Sometimes... Um, the gospel cuts through and moves, moves them on, and this thing is still unresolved. In my interviews, I always ended toward the end. One of my last questions was, was there any major obstacle that you had? And about half of the people said, yeah, I did. And about half of those said, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really ever get an answer to that question. For me, I would have said the big obstacle holding me back from belief in uh, God as Savior and Jesus as Messiah was that there was so much evil in the world, so much suffering, and particularly coming from a Jewish background, how in the world could God let our people go through the Holocaust? And as I look back at it, I think, you know what? I didn't get a full answer to that question before I became a believer. I hope this doesn't mess too many of you up, but um, I still don't think I have a totally satisfactory answer to that question. I think I've got the best answer that's out there, the one from the scriptures. But even, even we're left still with a whole lot of that unresolved, haven't we? So, don't feel, so yes, respect people's questions, but um, don't let that be the, the, the deal breaker. Well, let me see if you have some questions. We have some time. Um, I guess I'm going to have some people come uh, get microphones. Uh, so if you have a question for me, I'll do my best to answer. Oh, I should probably say I will try to answer with an answer. I will not say, how could you ask such a question? I, I, won't, I won't do that. So. so, who has a question? Uh, thanks very much, uh, Randy. Um, your first thing is to ask a question with a question like, really? I, I think we can do that. But the scary bit is they'll come back with a question. We don't know what's going to happen next. 
How do you sort of prepare for that unknown uh, field and territory? That's very good. I'm glad you asked that. Um, that wasn't I, a question, I, Randy. <laughs> uh, you are right. <laughs> um, uh, people probably will ask you lots of questions you don't know the answers to. You should prepare for it, and you should prepare your people. We should be very quick to be able to say things like, hmm, I don't know. That's a good one. Let me think. Could I get back to you? Those are all very, very good things to say. So I want us to all do the very best job we can of being ready to answer any question, but we should also be ready to say, um, could we try that again next week? Give me some time to think about it. Because um, I think that's going to happen a lot. And I think it immobilizes a lot of believers. Oh, I can't step into that until I've got it all mapped out and whatever. And I, I just think it's almost guaranteed that sooner or later people are going to ask us questions we don't know. And I think in our day and age, that's a very important pre-evangelistic thing to be able to... Um, uh, some of them think we have this answer for everything. We're, we're, we're know-it-alls. And sometimes it's really good to be able to say, hmm, I don't know. So, okay. When I'm training on that, I always say, the cults have an answer to everything. We're not a cult, so we do that. What else have we got? Other questions? Thank you so much. This is really helpful. Um, you spoke about our evangelistic strategy in the kind of late 20th century aiming at kind of T to, to Z. And uh, we've got some really helpful kind of courses uh, and things that we, we tend to do around the end. Where would courses and events and things fit in with what you're describing today? So you're thinking of uh, Christianity Explored courses and things like that? Yeah, that's yes. one of them. Right. Um, well, I really like them, and they are they are kind of on this end of the spectrum, although they're, I, don't, I don't think they're just T to Z. I think they're further back. So um, I think inviting people to be part of something that's over the course of several weeks allows for it to move gradually. I do think we need to give thought to how, how do we get people there, because I think that that's tougher today than it might have been 10 or 20 years ago. So I think there are some conversations back here trying to get them in the door there for a course or a Bible study. But, but again, I, I don't want to, um, uh, I, I don't want to hold, uh, we shouldn't hold back to, from inviting people to these things. I think we should. Because you, you never know all the drama that's going on behind that. And um, it's amazing when you invite people to Bible studies. Uh, it's amazing when you invite people to church. Um, there are a lot of people showing up at church today who have no church background whatsoever who get to age 21 or 25 and they go, you know, I don't, I don't have any kind of religion. Uh, my, my middle son is good friends with a friend now who's been coming to church with him for over two years. He's still, the, 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 the friend is still not a believer. But he first showed up by finding the church on Yelp. Do you have Yelp here? Is that, uh, 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 okay. So um, he just found it sort of anonymously and walked in. So I, I think we should invite people, but we also need to be thinking of what are some other things we can have. So I, I do think um, Christianity Explored is experimenting, aren't you, with uh, Hope Explored? It's like a it's sort of a, a pre-pre-pre-series. Uh, and those kind of conversations we need to be experimenting with and trying out. So I hope that's uh, helpful there. Here's, we go here in the front. Oh, oh, there we go. Um, I, uh, I have a drink with uh, three uh, retired gentlemen um, uh, in the same road that I live in. They call themselves the Woodland Drive Old Farts and, um, <laughs> uh, on, on a Friday. And uh, the big problem is um, they don't want to ask any questions. Um, they, they just enjoy fellowship, uh, and, and and there's no real engagement. Yeah. And I, how, how, you know, what do you do about that situation? Did you all hear? So, what about the people who aren't asking questions? So, yes, a lot of my model in, uh, assumes that they're starting by asking a question. Well, um, for, there are a lot of people who aren't asking questions, and w- so we need to be the ones who start and ask questions. 
And if you develop a close relationship, it sounds like you do have that with them. And I hope this is okay to say, but I think as we get older, there's there's more of a freedom to say some things with people our age. I hope that's okay to say. Um, so sometimes after some questions and they're not responding or whatever, um, we need to have a backup set of questions like, why 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 don't why don't you guys engage with me on this? Why, why are you not? In, these are important things. Um, I do think as people get older, we can turn up the, the, uh, the intensity. Um, I, I certainly did that with my dad. Um, I, I have a letter um, that I wrote to my dad when he turned 80. And the, the letter was basically something like, you're not getting any older, dad. We've talked about this a bunch, but I really want you to think about it pretty deeply. Um, uh, it's really beautiful. I, I didn't know until after my dad died that he, he kept that letter in a, a special kind of frame kind of thing in his in, in a room that was like his study. Um, so I found it framed and, and was overwhelmed by it. And, it. and I had written it 10 plus years before. So I think sometimes we need to be the ones asking the questions and sometimes even challenging them. Uh, don't you think these things are important? Um, and, and I think you, we need to experiment with it. It sounds to me like you've got the kind of friendship where you, you, you'd have to be pretty extreme to insult them. Am I right? Or maybe not? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, 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 I have. Uh, you have them. I've asked them lots of questions. And and, uh, and, and they provo- still meet with you. And provoke them yes. to say, you know, um, uh, you know you're, uh, uh, you, you don't ask any questions because you're dead. <laughs> is that something you said? Did you say that to them? I wouldn't necessarily recommend that line. I don't know. It's worth an experiment, but uh, it may not go well. In, in, a, in a slightly more gracious way than that. <laughs> well, sometimes um, another, another strategy on this spectrum is not asking a question or not answering a question with a question, but just making a statement and then letting it be. And, 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 and resisting the temptation to preach a sermon. But sometimes it's, you know, um, I, I really hope you'll think about this. And then bite your lip because it's really hard not to get up on a soapbox and preach. Thank so. you. I've got a question. If you want. Oh, yes. Um, so I was really interested in what you said about your family and not knowing their biographies. This is a bit controversial, but... Um, Ted Turnell puts it really interestingly in his book, Popologetics, about building bridges with people's culture, finding what they're interested in, and it being almost the biggest evangelistic tool. Um, do you think sometimes there's a danger of us in the church spending so much time doing churchy things that we're not investing the time in our friends and family who don't know? And actually, we could better resource evangelism if we were released a bit to do that. I feel like that's a loaded question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into it anyway. Um, for those of us who are very involved in church, we need to choose carefully and ask the Lord to show us what do we be involved in. We can't be involved in everything. We shouldn't be involved in everything. But what does He want us involved? What role does He have us playing there? And then some of us need to force ourselves into what might even seem like unnatural situations so that we get to know non-believers. Um, Rico joined a chess club. By the way, what's your record? Are you mostly a winner or a loser? <laughs> um, I just recently started taking a photography class at a local community college, and I and I didn't do it for this reason. But I realized after the second day, it's like, oh, most of these people are non-believers. I got to start developing relationships. So I think we need to force ourselves, and and again, uh, praying the confession of our idolatry of comfort. Because it's uncomfortable to get to know your neighbors if they have nothing in common with you. But, but you know, it's amazing. Uh, I think we can find common ground in, in places if we just get to know people. So, I forgot what our schedule is. When do we need to stop? Until when? Five minutes. Okay, good. Okay. Well, not yet. You want your phone back? Sorry. Um, by, the, by the way, Rico started a fire out back and... So, no. <laughs> well, I'll work on that later. All right, so a question back here. Then you're up next, yes. I'm, I'm involved in campus ministry, and I'm not sure a lot of the students 
could articulate the gospel in this declaring category in two minutes or three minutes ah. very clearly. Um, but I, I don't want to just teach them to declare the gospel in two minutes. I love to teach them to have this dialogical approach. Um, but do you think one needs to come before the other, or can we go from scratch and say, let's, let's work on articulating the gospel from, from the word go in terms of articulation or in terms of uh, Great. dialogue, or is it kind of level one, then level two? Does that make sense? Well, I, um, I, I don't know if it always follows the same pattern, but I do think in training, we must train believers, and we need to become very adept of declaring the gospel concisely and clearly. So I would work on that as a very high priority in, in evangelism training. So here, let me, let me take a very quick. Um, I very often train people to think that the gospel must address four things. God, people, Jesus, a response. God, people, Jesus, response. And that within each of those, there are two things. I mean, there's a million things we could communicate about God and about people and all that. But I think we only need to remember two. And so for me, it's about God. I want people to know that God is both holy and loving. About people, we're created in God's image, but rebellious, sinful. Jesus died and rose again. We need to respond with repentance and faith. Yes, I will repeat that. But no, I bet bet you can do it. I bet you already have it. What are the four categories? First one is God. Right. Two things about God is that he's... And and about people are... And sinful, rebellious. And Jesus... and, And we need to respond with... And faith, and so each one of these things needs expl- explanation. Or whatever, when we when we talk to people, so sometimes we just we say, "Here, listen. Let, let me just tell you what I believe, and then I'd, I'd love to know what you think about it." And we say it in two minutes, and it can be done. And then you go back and you find out, okay, they don't really understand what I mean by holy. All right, let me try to explain that. Or they don't know what I mean by creating the image of God. What does that look like? Um, and so, like a good uh, specialist, we find out where are the the, the touch points that need to be expressed further, and we do that. So, so I would want to encourage, especially in college ministry, uh, yeah, let's train them to, to go and proclaim it, um, but then let's also tell them where we think that could fit in in conversation. So, was there someone? Oh, one more. Hi, yeah. I, I work in retail, and the teachers use the open, open-end question approach. Do you think that approach could be used in Yeah, so there's a lot we learn from business world and sales and open-ended questions. Yeah, I think we need to learn how to ask good questions that will draw people out. Closed-end questions are simply yes or no. You know, do you agree with me or don't you? No. Well, that didn't go anywhere. So so we need to think ahead of time about open-ended questions. I see people coming closer to me. uh, Let me me do... I got... uh, uh, oh, that's right, I promised you, didn't I? And in light of stealing your phone, I think that's the least I could do. I was serving in Granby Street, Liverpool, and there are Jews and Muslims, and the Islam accepted the imam to go. I went to the rabbi, and he reported me to this minister who is a messianic Jew, messianic, and he told me only Jews can evangelize to Jews. Is that true? Oh, no. No. Oh, that was an easy question. I was. I didn't know where you were going. It started like a bad joke. This imam got together with a rabbi. I didn't know where this was going. I got nervous. Can can Gentiles witness to Jewish people? Yes, 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 yes. In fact, most most they've done research on the vast majority of Jewish people who become believers say a very important conversation for them was with a Gentile. We need to quit, but I want to. I got what? No, we'll do more Q and A after lunch. I promise. It'll right, be only three minutes. Tim, if you come up. Guys, just to say, I I'm trying I'm to say, in your contracts at work, if you're a pastor at a church, have half a day a week in the contract of work time that you're spending with non-Christians. If we don't model it as church leaders, we can't expect our people to do it. And so we've just got to have it in the rhythm of life. So if we can work on that. Tim. Uh, thanks, Randy. Uh, ben Jack. Where is Ben Jack? Ben Jack. Come up, come up, come up, come up. We're just going to hear a brief notice about something called Advance 2020, which is happening in Manchester. 
Oh, in fact, Birmingham even, but we'd love it to happen in Manchester, but we've chosen Birmingham this particular occasion. Um, so, hey, my name's Ben Jack. I work at the Message Trust here in Manchester, and we're part of something called Advance 2020, which is a, a, in partnership with a, a number of different organizations including and denominations, including the Church of England, building towards a year of intentional proclamational evangelism across the nation in, in 2020 to take the gospel on an unprecedented scale to the nation. I'm an evangelist, so I like hyperbole, but we're going to do it. We're going to have a go. And uh, we're going to really try and stir the church en masse to take the gospel seriously, not just engage in missional endeavor, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is to serve our communities indeed, but to make sure the articulation and proclamation of the gospel is at the heart of everything that we're doing. And this Saturday, we're gathering together to commission one another and to go, and we have a thousand evangelists or people that are evangelistically enthusiastic to uh, come and be prayed over, to be commissioned, to be equipped, to be inspired and encouraged to go and get the job done. And uh, brilliantly, uh, Randy mentioned earlier Ravi Zacharias, and we've got Ravi with us on Saturday in Birmingham. He's going to be helping us to think through some more of the challenges. This has been so helpful for us today. Thank you so much, Randy. What a blessing you are. And uh, we'll be continuing some of these very same conversations on Saturday, and we'd love to invite you along. I have some flyers that I'll leave somewhere in the exhibition area that you can come along. And as a special thing for you today, because I know some of you are already coming, actually, but for those of you that haven't heard about this, and you're like, well, this is the first I've heard of it, I even want to offer you a discount code. It's only £12.50 for the whole day anyway, um, but uh, I want to offer you a discount code. If you go and book a ticket at the website here, advanced2020.org, uh, and put in the discount slot, discount2020, you get 50% off. So at that point, it becomes what's half of £12.50, £6.75. That's a very specific amount, but um, you can get your ticket for just £6.75. We've got a great lineup of uh, speakers. We're going to be encouraging each other. Crucially, at the end of the day, we will gather all of these people together, and we will commission and be commissioned to go into the nation and take all of these wonderful things that Randy's been talking about, the hope of the gospel, to the nation. You also get to find out about something called Advanced Groups, which is peer group mentoring for uh, for evangelists that we'd love to get you connected into as well. So hopefully we'll see some of you there. Thanks, Ben. Oh, you don't want that. No. Um, just a couple of th- extra things on the bookstall. Um, we've uh, talked about conversations. Great little book by Dan Strange called Plugged In, which is about how we connect our faith with what we watch, read, and play. Really helpful for uh, just how you get from Coronation Street to Christ in a conversation um, in all kinds of in all kinds of ways, and um, uh, prayer because it is God's miracle to bring light to new eyes. A really encouraging little book by Alistair Begg, just helping us to know how to pray big rather than pray small. Um, uh, they're on the bookstall. Now it's lunchtime. Um, uh, the sandwiches are, and, and lunches are through uh, here and round into the main hall. If you are uh, meet, if you're a church leader, uh, Rico's having lunch in meeting room two, which is just by where the coffee's served. With those of you who are church leaders, um, and uh, just grab your uh, lunch there, please, and make your way quickly to meeting room two because that's starting in, in just a moment. Um, uh, let me pray for us as we uh, go and enjoy lunch and fellowship together. Thank you, our, our Heavenly Father, for uh, feeding our minds, our souls, our hearts this morning uh, from your word. Uh, thank you for what we're about to eat. We receive all things from your hands. Make us thankful people and help us as we speak with one another now to be encouraging Uh, to help one another, to um, speak with one another uh, so that we persevere and are encouraged in this great task of reaching out to the lost with the life-giving, wonderful words of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.